So tonight, we're going to talk about the family. And in this series on systematic theology, we've covered a lot of ground so far. We've laid a lot of foundation. And really beginning last week and moving forward to the end, we're talking about pretty practical things, pretty hands-on things. And I'll just preface the whole lesson tonight by saying, if you just jump in on this lesson and you haven't been here for some of the foundation we've laid in previous weeks about what do we believe about Scripture and what do we believe about God and what do we believe about sin and all those things, then some of the things we're going to talk about, if you just dropped into this, some of those things might be difficult to process. Uh, And so if there's something that we talk about tonight that uh, confuses you or you have trouble with, I'd love to visit with you about it. I also want to say this is one topic that is more personal than a lot of the other topics we've discussed. It's one thing for us to sit in here and sort of talk about abstract, you know, theological concepts and biblical concepts and truth claims and things like that. It's another thing for us to bring it home to our own lives and to talk about us, basically. And all of us have a family of some kind, for good or for bad. And so the things that we talk about tonight should ring true on some level. And uh, I do want to make sure you know nothing that I ever preach or ever teach, including tonight, is directed at any one person. And we will not be able to say everything that could be said about some of the topics we're talking about tonight when we talk about marriage and we talk about parenting and we talk about children. We could spend months, you know that, months and months and months sort of trying to include every caveat and explanation and unique situation and answering all sorts of questions, and that's just not what we're trying to do tonight. We're just trying to fly over the top and get the big picture view of what the Bible says about these things, and we've had to do that every week. We, we haven't been able to really go super in-depth in a lot of these things because there's so much ground to cover when you're looking Genesis to Revelation. What does it say about this topic? You've got to really hit the high points, so that's what we're going to try to do tonight. In the United States, don't answer this out loud. I just want you to think in your brain for a minute. In the United States, where do you think most children get their understanding of what family is? Just think about that for a second. Most kids in our country, where do they get that concept of family? Whether they could articulate it or they just have a sense of it and a feeling of it, where do they get that? Um, I think you'd be pretty hard to argue against this in saying... Number one, it's their own home experience. What do they see at home? Or what do they not see at home and experience at home? From parents, from mom and dad, from marriage, all of those things they watch growing up, that forms the basis, pretty strong basis. And I think second, but not a whole lot distant of a second, would be television and movies. Watching TV and movies and sort of just taking it in passively. You don't watch most TV shows and movies and think, okay, I better be on my guard because they're going to try to lie to me about family or marriage or parenting or kids or anything. But you do have to be on your guard. And if you're not on your guard, you just sort of swallow ideas and concepts and, and things without uh, really thinking about them. When you start to think about television and the influence of that, you kind of get to the old debate, maybe you've heard people talk about this before, of does art imitate life or does life imitate art 
meaning when you watch a television show and they're showing you a family, is that the TV show simply reflecting what's taking place in our culture? Or does our culture take in that message and that story from TV and then imitate what we see in the art? And probably the truth of it is it's a little bit of both. And uh, to quote somebody that I don't think I've ever quoted in a, uh, a Bible study before, Woody Allen said this, Life doesn't imitate art. It imitates bad television. You don't have to really like Woody Allen or anything that he stood for or said, but I think that's pretty spot on, at least in our society, to say that life ends up imitating whatever junk we see on TV. We see it over and over and over again. We're trained and conditioned to laugh at it and to think that it's funny, or we're trained and conditioned to think that it's normal and it's okay, and then we just sort of begin to imitate that. And uh, I just want to show you, just with a little example, the power of television to shape your idea of family. Because a lot of us sit in here and we say, oh, okay, some people do that, but I mean, I believe the Bible, and so I'm going to let the Bible shape my idea of family more than anything I've seen on television. But television really is a powerful thing, and it touches almost everybody in our society. Um, I know we talk a lot about healthcare these days being a right or not a right, but I think you could also make the argument that cable TV in this country has become a right. Like, people have this understanding, they have to have it, can't live without it. Um, And I can't tell you how many times we've had people come to this church or previous churches I've pastored needing financial assistance for food, and as you talk to them, they're paying 120 bucks a month for cable TV. And if you ever suggest that they give that up, they just look at you like, I can't do that. TV is a powerful thing. Um, There's only so many kinds of TV shows out there. We're really not creative. There's police shows, lawyer shows, doctor shows, superhero shows, reality shows, and then family shows. A lot of TV shows that just center around families. And I found an article this week by TV Guide, and they had the 60 greatest TV families of all time. And what I did is pull some of the top ones, and then I threw in a few others that I personally thought needed to be in the top, make the top cut. And uh, I'm not going to put the name of the TV show up, and I'm not going to put the name of the family up. But I bet most of you can nail every one of these. What is the TV show, and who is the family? And so we're just going to tick through some of these. Brady Bunch. They were number one on every list I looked at. I guess family TV, you got to go with the Bradys. So Bradys are number one. Number two, The Huxtables, The Cosby Show. Everybody knows The Cosbys. Next show, never seen an episode of this personally, but it's The Sopranos, Tony Soprano and crew. And you guys may say, I don't know nothing about The Sopranos, but a lot of people have watched The Sopranos and taken their cues about family, whether they intend to or not, from The Sopranos. So there you go. A classic, all in the family. Archie and Meathead, you got to love them. Next, everybody loves Raymond. Family is the Barones, the Barones. This is a funny show. I don't care who you are. You get mad at me for liking it or whatever, I don't care. It's just a funny, funny show. Uh, the, The Connors, Roseanne. Next, 
Dallas. Never watched an episode of Dallas in my life. The Cleavers, Beaver Cleaver, there you go. Hey, you laugh at that and you think, oh, the Adam's family, and you snap and you do the things. I promise you, it teaches you something about family and how family's supposed to work, whether you're paying attention or not. Next, the Waltons. Everybody loves the Waltons. The Ingalls, I put that one in there. I just had to do it because my namesake is the lead role, Michael Landon. So he deserves to be up there. Full House. Somebody got excited about Full House. Who was that? Yes. Yes, the Tanners. Family Ties. The What's the family name? Uh, nope. Oh, we're, we're caught up here. Keatons. Keatons. Alex P. Keaton. Home Improvement, the Taylor family, and last but not least, Flintstones and the Jetsons. You know all of those. You recognize them. And when you watch those pictures roll through, you start to think about the characters and what they're like. And uh, just to pick on one example that I like, because I pointed out Everybody Loves Raymond. It's such a funny show. And it presents such a lousy picture of what a husband's supposed to be. So incredibly lousy of what a husband and a father's supposed to be. And every one of those shows, every one of them, some portray positive characteristics and some of them portray not positive characteristics. And when you're watching these shows, you're not being critical. I'm not being critical most of the time. We're just taking it in and you're learning this is normal. This is what other families are like. This is how other people treat their husband or their wife. This is how other people treat their kids. Or this is how other kids treat their parents. And you take that in and you just begin to think that this is expected and normal and accepted. And we just kind of need to hit a timeout button and go back to Scripture and say, what does the Bible have to say about some of these things? So question number one, what do I need to know about the family? Just a couple of ideas here. Start with marriage, because that's where the Bible starts. Marriage is a relationship in which one man and one woman commit themselves to each other in a covenant whereby two become one. A contract is an agreement where if one party does not hold up their end of the bargain... The other party is then off the hook. The contract is broken. It's null and void. The biblical idea of a covenant is different. When two parties enter into a covenant, both parties are saying, I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain no matter what. And that's especially true as God makes a covenant with his people, as he makes a covenant with Abraham, and as he makes a covenant with David, because God's the one doing all the promise-making. He's not saying... Abraham, I'm going to need you to do this for me, or David, I'm going to need you to do this for me. He's simply saying to those guys, I'm going to do it regardless. I'm going to keep up my end of the deal, and that's the idea of a covenant. So look at Genesis chapter 2. We'll go way back to the beginning, passage that you're familiar with. Genesis 2, verse 18 down to verse 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good 
that the man should be alone. That's the first time in the Bible that anything was said to be not good. And it's interesting that it's said before sin enters the world. There is no sin in the world, and God looks at everything that he's made, and he says there's something here that is not good, and he moves to fix it. He moves to to make it right. So it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. We talked about that verse when we talked about work a few weeks back, that this was Adam working with his mind, working with his hands, was keeping the garden, but this is working with his mind, and both of those things are work. Uh, He gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man He made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, first love song in all human history, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So that's the biblical picture is two people coming together making this covenant and the two become one. Um, Just a few things underneath marriage. Uh, And there's a thousand things we could say here, but we're going to try to keep it really brief, okay? A, divorce was not part of God's original plan for marriage, but there are biblical allowances for divorce in certain situations. Look at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 is God giving Moses the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is not all of the law that God gave Moses, but it's a summary of the law that God gave to Moses. And the first half deals with, the first four, deal with the people and their relationship with God. And then the last half, the last six, deal with the people and their relationship with each other. And right after, honor your father and your mother, which we're going to come back to, Commandment number 6 in verse 13, excuse me, uh, in verse 14, right after honor your father and mother and don't murder, uh, Exodus twenty fourteen says, you shall not commit adultery. And I'm going to let you look up Matthew 5 later if you need a reminder about that passage, but that's Jesus saying to a bunch of self-righteous people, if you feel like you should pat yourself on the back because you've never committed adultery with somebody, but you have lusted in your heart after a woman, then you have committed adultery. Because all of these commandments, when you get down to number 10 and you see that coveting is an internal heart issue, then you turn around at number 10, you do a U-turn, and you go back through 9 to 1, and you say all of those are internal issues. They're not only external actions, but they're all matters of the heart. And the idea of what Jesus is saying is Matthew 5 is not just have you ever sexually lusted after a person, but the real idea there is have you ever found yourself wishing that you weren't married to the person you are married to or that you were married to a person you're not married to? Have you ever wished that you were in a different family? Have you ever wished that you had a different family situation? And that's the idea behind this command, do not commit adultery. Um, Look with me at Deuteronomy 24. 
Deuteronomy 24. I just want you to see that even in the Old Testament, God speaking through Moses is acknowledging that at times there's going to be situations where divorce takes place, but he's controlling it, so to speak. He's limiting it. He's putting protections around it so that the people don't just break out into crazy land. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in in her hand and sends her out of his house or the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled for that's an abomination before the Lord you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance we could really spend a lot of time breaking that down and thinking about what Moses is saying but the big picture I'm just take away the big picture here is God through Moses is saying you can't do whatever you want to do when it comes to marriage and divorce This is not a free-for-all where you get to make it up as you go and God's putting constraints around the people. Uh, Look at Matthew 19, one last verse here. Matthew 19. Jesus is sort of being quizzed or grilled about marriage and they're trying to trick him and trap him specifically on this issue of divorce. And in Matthew 19, starting in verse 7, They said to him, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? That's what we just read in Deuteronomy, right? Something indecent comes up, you give her this certificate of divorce, you send her away, and they say, well, what about this? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. That's not the design of marriage. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now listen. There's a thousand things we can say about this as we start to talk about divorce and when it's allowed and when it's not allowed and when it's justified and when it's not. And the purpose of tonight's lesson is not to try to explain every possible scenario, okay? If you have questions about that, you want to argue about it, debate about it, talk about it, learn about it, I'm happy to visit with you. The point we're making here is it wasn't part of God's design for how he wanted marriage to work, okay? B, polygamy polyamory, homosexual marriage, serial monogamy, and open marriage all fall outside the biblical definition of marriage. And Jesus lays that out right there in Matthew 19 when they're really quizzing him about marriage. And he says, in the beginning, he made them male and female. And what God has brought together, no one should separate. Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis 2 and says, this is the standard And all of these other things fall outside of it. So polygamy is having more than one wife. Polyamory is a woman having more than one husband. And there are cultures, um, some Native American cultures in the continental United States practice that and advocate that. Um, Homosexual marriage we're familiar with today. Serial monogamy, no one really ever talks about that, but that's sort of just... I'm going to get married to one person at a time, but then I'm going to divorce them and marry somebody else for a while, and I'm going to be with them, and then I'm going to divorce them, and I'm going to marry someone else and be with them for a while, and I'm going to divorce them. And it's just sort of, I'm married to one person at a time, but it's just a series of one right after the other, right after the other. That's not the picture that we're talking about in Scripture of marriage. 
Open marriage is the idea that two people are married together, but you can have intimate relationships with people outside of that marriage. And I list some of those, and let me just say two things. One, I know you look at some of that stuff and you, you say, well, duh, that's obvious. Why do we need to? That's so, such basic stuff. I got on CNN.com today and FoxNews.com, and I didn't search hard. I just looked at the top articles that they had up on both sites. And on, between those two sites, Fox News and CNN, and it was about half on each site, I saw articles that encouraged, promoted, and tried to defend polygamy, homosexual marriage, serial monogamy, and open marriage. It took me about two minutes to find it. Every last one of those saying, that is a good idea. We should do this. This is great. We need to be open to these things, pushing those things upon us. That's the idea of our culture. Um, you may be wondering, why didn't you give us any Bible verses here? Um, I can give you Bible verses if you want to look up some Bible verses. I can give you Bible verses all day long, and we can talk about that. I didn't give you Bible verses because I don't want the focus of our lesson to be on all the things we're against. I really want it to be on what we're for. And sometimes as Christians, we don't balance that very well. We just sort of rail against, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. We don't ever say, this is what's good. So we can talk about those things. If you have questions, if you want to look at Scripture with me, I'm happy to do that. My point here tonight is to say, what is marriage? It's a relationship where one man and one woman commit themselves to each other in a covenant whereby two become one. Okay? One last idea on marriage. The Bible assumes God's people will marry within the faith. Within the faith, meaning they will marry believers. This is something, as I talked with Hunter, Hunter's teaching this material with our youth upstairs, and each week we kind of put our heads together and say, yeah, you know, some of these things are going to be hard to talk to youth about just because of the concepts, and some things don't apply as much. And I told him, this is one thing you really need to talk to youth about, because this absolutely applies to your dating relationships. It absolutely applies to your closest friendships in life. And it certainly applies uh, to the person you marry. Let's look up just one of these verses for time. Look at Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. Nehemiah led the people back to the promised land and they rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. And Nehemiah was part of a, a group of leaders who looked back on the exile when the people got kicked out of the promised land and they realized it was our sin that brought this exile upon us. It wasn't just God slapping us around for no reason. It was God disciplining us because we continually, persistently rebelled against him. And one of the ways in which they did that was by marrying outside of the faith, marrying pagan peoples who worshipped other gods and goddesses. So look at Nehemiah 13, starting in verse 23. He says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. When you read that, you, you almost think, so Nehemiah's like a racist? Like he doesn't want them to marry any other race? That's not the point. The point is, when these children can't speak or read the language of Judah, they can't read the scriptures, and they can't understand the scriptures. That was the root of the problem originally leading up to the exiles. They weren't committed to God's word. So, Nehemiah says, I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and pulled out their hair, probably went a little bit too far, 
didn't handle it perfectly, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? In other words, can we just learn from our mistakes? This is where the whole kingdom went off the rails to begin with. When Solomon starts marrying these pagan women and bringing their idols into the city, Among the nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? The principle is repeated in the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, and you can look those up. Um, So that's sort of an intro to marriage there. Okay? Here's another thought on marriage, just a separate thought that you need to get. God created marriage to serve as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And we're going to look at Ephesians 5 in a minute, so we'll come back to that. This is what I want you to understand. Okay? In the mind of God, and then you, this is when you preface something within the mind of God, you're really kind of treading on thin ice. Okay? But in the mind of God, when you read Ephesians 5, you walk away from that saying, the primary relationship that he wanted to create was the relationship between Jesus and his church. That was foundational in his plan. And as a way to help us understand our relationship with Jesus in the church, we're going way back to the beginning, God comes up with this idea of marriage saying, I'm going to create this thing that is going to teach my people something very, very true about what it's like to have a relationship with me. And you see this in the Old Testament. For example, Ezekiel 16, which we won't read. It's incredibly graphic. It's incredibly up in your face, describing the ugliness of adultery. And God immediately applies that ugliness to his people and their sin against him, saying, You see and you feel this ugliness when it's a husband and a wife and they're abandoning each other and they're cheating on each other and their marriage is broken. That's what's happened between you and me because of your rebellion. And he's teaching them something. And you see the same thing in Ephesians 5. He's saying that marriage points us to the greater relationship of Jesus and his people. So we could talk about that for hours on end, but we're going to move on. Number three. The Bible calls parents to discipline their children in love, to teach their children the gospel, and to set a godly example for their children to follow. It's the obligation of parents. Discipline your kids, teach them the gospel, and set a godly example that they can follow. We're not going to look at Deuteronomy 6 because we've read that the last several weeks as we've talked about different issues, this idea of you've got to teach them Everywhere you go, throughout the day, all the time, you've got to teach them the truth about God. Um, I didn't give you any verses in Proverbs. I just gave you the whole book. Because the whole book of Proverbs is prefaced on the idea of the father is teaching the son. The mother is teaching her children. Listen to them. They're giving you wisdom. They're teaching you truth. We'll look at Ephesians 6.4 very quickly. Ephesians 6.4. It's a good summary passage of the obligation of parents. It says, Fathers, and this includes mothers, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Okay? Don't provoke them, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. 
As a parent, if you don't balance all three of those tasks that you just filled in, things go haywire. And look, you know as well as I do, as a parent, you can balance all three of those things perfectly and things can still go haywire. But if you don't balance all of those things, it definitely something's going to go off the rails. You know as well as I do, if you don't discipline children, life does not work well for them. And you can look at, I mean, a thousand examples in our culture and our society, and I won't pick on any one institution or place or group of people or anything, but you just know it's not going to work if you don't discipline them. I was at the dentist this week, and there was a mom in there with her kid, and there was the three of us in the waiting room for about 20 minutes, and the kid was an absolute off-the-wall heathen, and she just smiled at it the whole time. And about 30 times, with with smile on her face, I'm about to spank you. Of course, that never happened. But you sit there and you say, I have a pretty good idea of what that kid's going to be like in 15 years. He's going to be slapping his teacher and spitting at the teacher and cussing his teacher and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea. Discipline has to be there. You also have to teach them the gospel. Meaning you can't pawn that off on me or Corey or Hunter or Terry or Jennifer or someone here at this church. You have to do it as the parent or as the grandparent. Because if you don't teach them the gospel, you can be very faithful and disciplined. And you can be very faithful in setting a good example for them. But if you don't teach them the truth of the gospel, they're going to grow up. And they're going to be a very well-mannered lost person. And not know Jesus. And that's totally missing the point. And if you don't set an example, it doesn't matter how much discipline you give them or how much teaching you give them. You know as well as I do, it just it doesn't work. So that's the role of parents. What about children? Flip it to children. Number four. The Bible calls children to obey father and mother while under their care. And to honor father and mother through all of life. Let's look at Ephesians 6, since we're right here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is a quote from Exodus 20. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Obey your parents, your father and your mother, and honor them throughout all of life. Um, I gave you John 19 as an example of Jesus doing that. Right up to his last moment as he's hanging on the cross. There's a strange little story where he looks down at his mom and he looks at his friend John. And he knows that his brothers think that he's crazy at the moment. They don't believe in him. And he's concerned about his mom who's more than likely a widow already. And now she's losing her oldest son. And she probably has a strange relationship with Jesus' brothers. Because they think Jesus is crazy and they're probably mad at Mary for encouraging Jesus. So he looks at John and he says, I need you to take care of my mom. And he looks at Jesus and says, John's going to take care of you. And it's just such a strange little story. All the intense, heavy things taking place during the crucifixion. And you see this little time out. And it's Jesus keeping the fifth commandment. To honor his mother even down to the very last moment of his life. So there's a, a biblical picture of that. There's a thousand ways that we could qualify this statement. We could start to talk about what if parents are abusing children. Well, that makes the situation different. We could start to talk about what if parents are encouraging their children to do sinful things. That makes this completely different. 
And it makes it difficult and muddy sometimes to sort out this issue of obeying and honoring. And again, the point tonight is not to sort all of that out, but to say the big picture is, in normal circumstances, children are obeying their parents and they're honoring them throughout life. I'll give you one quick example of how this gets tricky. In Oklahoma, um, the largest church in, in the town we lived in in Kingfisher was a Catholic church. And it was not predominantly Hispanics who attended there in Kingfisher. There, there wasn't a large Hispanic population. It was predominantly uh, white folks who attended there. But it was a big church, big presence there. And while I was pastor there, and one of my friends was our youth pastor, we had a kiddo who started coming to our youth group from one of the most well-known families in town, which everybody's well-known when there's 4,000 people in town, but very prominent family, owned the newspaper, everybody knows them, big deal, and he starts coming to our youth group. And the parents really didn't care um, a whole lot until he went home and told them, I don't want to be Catholic anymore, I want to be Baptist. Then they got really Catholic, and they cared, and they said, no, you can't go, you got to come, and they tried to they just kind of cut him off from coming. And he said to us, what do I do? 18 years old. What do I do? And we just, we prayed about it with him and talked about it with him. And we said, well, for now, I think you need to honor them in that. And you need to go. And you can read your Bible and you can study and you know the truth. But for now, you need to honor them. And about two or three months later, they started letting him come on Wednesday nights. That was it. Not Sunday morning. He had to go to Mass on Sunday morning. And then a couple of months later, they said, okay, you can go to big church there at the early service, but then you've got to come to Mass with us, and you can't go to Sunday school. And we did that for a while, and we went along with that. And then they said, okay, you, can, you don't have to go to Mass. You can go to church there with your friends, but you really got to go. You have to participate. You can't skip and run off somewhere else. They let him do that. And you kind of saw this progression as they begin to let him do things. But where it, where it left off is they said, you cannot be baptized. And he wanted to do it so bad. He came to us all the time and said, I want to be baptized. I have not been baptized. I want to obey Jesus in that. I mean, you talk about a guy making the biblical case for why you should baptize him. He made it. And his parents said, absolutely not. And we kind of had to sort that through. Well, what do you do? Is it good to be baptized? Yes. Do you understand what you're doing? Is it a good thing to do? Yes. But... Somehow you're going to have to fit that with honoring your parents. And I'm just telling you, sometimes it gets tricky to apply these things to real-life situations and to figure it out, and you have to end up praying for wisdom. Number five, God intends for families to function as a spiritual unit. That's kind of a vague idea. It's just kind of a, it's not really a biblical term, but it's just an attempt tonight to say, Families are supposed to function almost like a mini church. Like if the only place Jesus and worship and prayer and Bible study takes place is in this building or with these people and never in the family unit, there's a problem. And I've given you some examples here um, that we're not going to read, but let's just talk about them. Exodus 12 is the Passover. And the people were commanded to celebrate the Passover as families. Come together as your family, and you do it with your family. If you had a really small family, you could sort of tag on with somebody else. 
but the family was the center of that celebration. Joshua 24, you guys know Joshua's charge to the people, his last sermon, and he says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, right? This unit right here is moving in this direction, and I hope that you guys will make the same decision. He wasn't calling individuals to make decisions. He was calling families to move in that direction. Acts 16, uh, there's a couple of examples there of households being baptized. Lydia and everyone in her household. And that makes us kind of nervous today. We think, well, that's an individual thing. You're supposed to decide that for yourself. But that's kind of how people made decisions back then. And to be honest with you, that's how people make decisions in a lot of cultures all over the world. This is a family deal. We're either all going in or we're not going in. And that's, that's how Lydia did it. That's how the jailer's family did it. It's the family acting as a unit. Um, and you see the same thing in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. One caveat on this, okay? When I say to you the family is supposed to function as a spiritual unit, that does not mean that your family devotion time takes the place of church. And some people, many of us make the mistake of we only do Bible stuff, Jesus stuff at church, never with family. But a few people get so spun up intense crazy about it that they sort of pull away from church and they do it only in their family. And uh, Brooke and I have had some very close friends before in a previous town who uh, they love Jesus, super great family, great parents, great kids, worked hard, disciplined their kids, taught them the gospel, said, I mean, great family. But eight Sundays out of ten, they did home church. And two out of ten, they came to church. And I don't have any doubt that they really did home church. Like, that was not for them just, we slept in and we called it home church. That was, they really did it. But we talked with them several times, and I said, I think you're missing it. I mean, do home church. That's great. But that can't take the place of church. Um, But families function as a spiritual unit. One last idea. Christians are called to care for the most vulnerable. And this is just a way of saying... The idea of family does not stop with mom, dad, Bobby and Susie, nuclear family. Um, The idea of family is bigger than that. And you guys know the story when the guy came to Jesus and said, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan to say, someone in need is your neighbor, and you have the obligation to help them. And that same idea is true with your family. Who's part of my family? Well, those who are vulnerable are part of your family. Um, Look at James chapter 1, just as a a good summary of this idea. James 1. If anyone thinks, this is verse 26, that he's religious and he does not bridle his tongue, deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You've got to care about these people who aren't necessarily part of your inner circle family group, DNA group. And caring about these vulnerable people is part of of what it means to have, according to James, true religion. And this is why Christians adopt more kiddos than any other religious group on the planet. It's built into the, the, the DNA of who we are as followers of Christ, to care about the least among us and the vulnerable among us, those who are on the margins. This is why Christians 
for all our faults and all our mistakes, do more than any other religious group to try to fight poverty through things like compassion. You know how many Christians have started organizations like Compassion to try to help people and serve people and meet needs? All of that flows out of the biblical idea that you've got to care for those who are vulnerable and those who are needy around you. Why do you need to know this? Two simple ideas. This is not complicated, but it is important. Number one, all cultures, all, ours included, need to be shaped by the biblical view of family. And I want to look up two of these verses. Look at Ecclesiastes 7. If you can find the book of Psalms, and then you can find the book of Proverbs to the right. Ecclesiastes is next. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 10, says, Say not, in other words, don't say this, Why were the former days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask this. Especially when it comes to the family, and especially among Christians in the United States, people say, man, if we could just go back to the leave it to beaver days, to the Cleaver family. Everything was perfect back then. And the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, no, it was not. It was not. There may have been a nice shiny, polished Christian veneer on the outside of things, but things were not any different because the people who lived back in the Cleaver days were sinners just like you and me. No different. Don't go longing for the good old days. This is not something of wisdom. So don't say, well, our culture used to have it figured out and now we've forgotten what it means to operate as a family. There's issues today that we need to deal with, but there's not some golden age in the United States where we could go back and say, well, everything was just perfect back then. Look with me at Romans 12 as the counter to this and sort of the positive challenge to this idea. Romans 12. This fits in very well with the the idea of television and TV families that we talked about earlier. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world. Do not let the world define marriage, parenting, husbands, wives, children. Don't buy into whatever the world says about these things. But... Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Okay? Last idea is this. Our families ought to teach people truth about God and the gospel. And this is where we're going to finally read Ephesians 5. And what Paul's saying to husbands and wives is, and this applies to what he goes on to say in chapter 6 about parents and children, your relationship as a family is a sermon that you preach to the world. And the way that you interact with your spouse and your children and your parents and all of that stuff, that teaches and that preaches a message to the world about the gospel and about God. You may realize you're preaching and sending and putting out that message or you may have no idea that you're putting out but you're putting it out 
This is what he says in Ephesians 5, starting in 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church submits to Christ, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And you notice husbands get a much longer paragraph because we're a lot dumber than most wives. So he starts into husbands and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, this should sound familiar, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Your marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And your marriage, as that picture, is either telling the truth about Jesus and his church or telling the world a lie about Jesus and his church. And again, that applies to what follows in, in talking about parents and the role of parents in children. The way you parent, the way you interact with your parents, teaches the world truth about God and the gospel or lies about God and the gospel. So this is an important topic to wrestle with. And again, not to be conformed to the world, but to uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me mention a couple of books and we'll wrap up. Um, these are books that I actually recommend to people on a, a regular basis. And what I mean by that is um, lots of people come and say, I need a good book on marriage or I need a good book on parenting or I need a good book on something related to what we've talked about tonight. And so these are books uh, that people... I encourage people to read these books regularly. Um, the first one I'll mention is a very short book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? And the reason I include this one is because right now this is the biggest, most pressing challenge, maybe, to marriage in the United States that we have to interact with and deal with and talk to folks about and Quite frankly, it's a conversation that Christians have not done well in um, because we're getting the mat, they're wiping the mat with us. I mean, they're just killing us. And so this is a helpful book. It's not long. It's easy to read. And he just goes through the Bible and says, this is what Scripture really says about it. And you can take it or leave it, but this is what it says. Um, this is a book by... Russell Moore is called Adopted for Life, and I, I wrote Adoption for Life in the notes, so that's my mistake. It's Adopted for Life, and it's a book about adoption, and it's a fantastic book about adoption. We have several families in our church that have adopted kiddos and um, grandparents who have adopted grandkiddos and things like that. Fantastic book about adoption. If that's something um, that has happened in your family or something that it may happen in your family, I would encourage you to, to think through that book. There's a book I put on your list called Parenting. It's not the most creative title, but it's the best book on parenting that I've ever read. And it's a, a new book. And um, what's really interesting to me is the author, Paul Tripp, wrote a book about parenting several years back. And 
tons and tons and tons and tons of people have read it. And it kind of has a cult following um, among a lot of Christians that like, it's, it's belongs in the Bible. It's so good. And in this book, he says, I wish back then that I had written this book and not that book. Not that he completely disowns it, but he just says this, I think, is more on track with the biblical idea of parenting. And so if you know somebody, parents, somebody struggling with parenting, it's called Parenting 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family, and it is super, super good. The last one I'll mention is this. Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage, is not a super easy book to work through, but it is by far the best book I've ever read about marriage and what it is and what it's not and why it matters. And so if that's something that you're interested in um, and you're going to read one book on it, this would be the, the book that I would pick, and it's a fantastic read.